Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I have my friend and colleague, Hamish Knox, who's the author of two great books, Change and Accountability. Today, we're going to focus on the subject of accountability. Hamish, can you give a quick 30 seconds to one minute intro to yourself? And who you said. Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me on, Marcus. So we typically serve CEOs, owners, and presidents in the Calgary, Alberta, Canada area who have two or more salespeople. And really we're focused on two things: creating consistent, sustainable, repeatable, and for some of our clients, ultimately sellable at a higher multiple cash engines. And then also facilitating more effective human-to-human interactions, whether that's personally or professionally. Fantastic. Okay, let's get straight into the meat and grist of this uh, subject. Accountability is largely viewed as a dirty word and many people view it as handcuffs. Because accountability is really about freedom because human beings abhor ambiguity because ambiguity turns into anxiety and then it leads into fear and no one likes to be afraid. So if we have accountability, we at least know the boundaries of the, of the box that we're playing in. And if we know that and we are given the permission, protection, and potency to succeed in that box and stretch it where necessary, that's where accountability becomes freedom. I have to agree. I mean, I always used to push back against accountability, particularly when I was very bad and inept. And my experience is that people who aren't good or afraid of getting found out and lack that vulnerability to take the knocks, take the feedback are the ones who push back. The winners love it because it gives them clarity. And ambiguity is the mother of all muck-ups. I'm being polite for a change. Clarity leads to freedom as well. So tell me this, in terms of what you want people to do as a result of reading the book, what is it you are hoping that people would change in terms of their behavior and their outlook? That they will stop using accountability as a stick and stop using consequences as the ultimate consequence. There's a whole chapter on consequences in the book because consequence typically means you're fired. And the fact of the matter is that it's very expensive to recruit, hire, onboard, and ultimately terminate a bad fit employee. And you bring that up in your book on channel selling. And the consequences need to escalate. We talk about a consequence ladder, but I want them to use consequences as a way to reinforce what the person already committed to, as opposed to holding over the sword of Damocles and making them work through anxiety as opposed through motivation. Absolutely. I mean, again, people sell for their reasons, not your reasons. And I think one of the really important factors that we've really strong on within Sandra is making sure that you tie the personal motivation to the corporate objectives and tie those exactly. two things together. And in your book, you really draw on this. How can a manager or a CEO or MD who's leading a sales team really bring the personal motivation in line with the company objectives and make sure that that accountability program is getting the job done? It's really going to sound silly to the audience, Marcus, but the first step is to ask them. My experience is a lot of CEOs and MDs don't even have the conversation. You know, they, they hire a person and when they show up in their office, they're their employee. And when they leave, they could care less about what happens to them afterwards. And we really believe in the fact that someone is a whole person and we're there to support them as a whole human being. So first of all, just ask them, what, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up, to use a silly cliche, and really find out the, the whys behind that. We have clients who come to us and say, well, I want to double my take-home pay next year. And my very first question back is, well, why? And then what happens if you do that? You know, what's the, the, where, where's the so what in that? So really diving down into that so what 
to find out that motivation. Actually, one of our uh, our colleagues told a great story about how they had a, an accountant on their team and they discovered that they wanted to send their child to college and they were an immigrant. No one had ever gone to college. And so what they did is they put together a program where that person was compensated based on savings that they made for the company. And they, they very clearly defined the box because you can go to some extremes with that. But within one year, that accountant had earned enough to pay for the first year of university and they were an absolute fanatic for finding cost savings in the organization. Fantastic. Again, one of the things that I hear a lot is, well, you know, I don't need accountability and any number of cruddy excuses. What's the remedy for that? The ultimate remedy is you eventually fail and, and, and you, you <laughs> run face first into a brick wall. And that really comes down to success by default or by design. And there's lots of companies out there that are successful by default because they built something that someone said, I'll pay you for, and then someone else said, I'll pay you for it, et cetera, et cetera. And ultimately, they're sitting on top of a house of cards that's going to fall apart. So it's going to take them coming to having a bad month or a bad quarter or a bad year where they're just essentially running on a treadmill that's going nowhere for them to say, ah, you know what, maybe I do need a bit of that accountability thing that I heard about <laughs> and shifting their mindset from accountability is, is a stick to accountability is freedom. In your book, you have this wonderful exercise, the I don't need accountability because you talk about, you know, complete that sentence and then why are you sure that sentence you wrote is true and what evidence do you have to support it? Because uh, yeah. I think that's really pivotal because very often people come with a closed mind. And mm -hmm. what's really interesting about implementing accountability is it opens people's minds to the possibility. For the first, I don't know, 17, 18 years of my career, I was pushed back against systems because I thought they limited my creative freedom. What, right. what I realized was they set me free because within the, the framework, uh, it allowed me to be as creative as I like. And mm -hmm. in terms of putting an accountability process together, I think one of the key themes that we teach in Sandler is people never argue with their own data. Um, yes. So how do you build an accountability system that really ties in with the salesperson's data? And it really comes down to, and, and this goes to the whole micromanager aspect, right? I don't need accountability because I don't want to be a micromanager. Now, part of that is because there's a lot of managers out there who, uh, as I love your phrase of Tim, nice, but dim, uh, <laughs> and they just want to be liked, uh, as opposed to actually being a proper manager and a proper leader of their team. And so what it comes down to is a very quick conversation on Monday saying, you know, Hey, Marcus, what are you going to do this week in terms of prospecting behaviors? And what opportunities are you going to advance from the top of the funnel to the middle of the funnel and from the middle of the funnel to out of the funnel, whether we win the business or lose it? And then on Friday, having a bit of a longer conversation to say, hey, Marcus, on Monday, you said you were going to do this, 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 advance these opportunities. Help me understand how that happened or what happened with that. And then listening, because what you're thinking is, I don't want to tell Hamish what I actually did because he's going to use that to beat me up. He's going to use it as a gotcha moment. Uh -huh. And it really can't be that. It's got to be, okay, Marcus, so you said you were going to do 50 prospecting calls. You only did 25. Help me understand. What came up? How do we make this up? How do I support you in that? Not that I'm going to do your job, but I'm going to give you permission, protection, and potency in order for you to make up those numbers next week. One of the most interesting accountability exercises that I teach my clients is to get your kids involved, particularly for owners of businesses or salespeople who are ambitious and really want to turn their careers around. You take a sheet of flip chart paper 
Uh, mm-hmm. You draw a thermometer on it, and it's yeah. like a church spire appeal. So you have the uh, revenue target, the target date, then on the other side, the actual date achieved, the reward, and who is going to receive it. And Absolutely. you contract uh, with the kids, and you say to them, kids, uh, I need you to ask daddy a question every day when I come home, and I promise I'll never get angry with you. And it's, daddy, what did you sell today? And <laughs> it's amazing the difference that makes in terms of personal accountability, because I, I, I believe accountability is something that someone has to do for themselves. And you own that. You know, one of the key competencies that we look for is taking personal responsibility. And yes. I'm curious, in your experience, how has introducing an accountability program raised the level of personal responsibility? It's quite fascinating because you'll very quickly, and my clients have very quickly discovered uh, individuals who self-select, which is my favorite HR's cliche, And some of those are people on the team who have been doing incredibly well. They've been hitting all their numbers, et cetera, et cetera. But again, they've been successful by default instead of by design. And to your point earlier, they go, "Uh uh-oh, I can't hide anymore that I've got a house of cards. I'm actually going to have to report on what I'm doing to build my business. And really, it's been built around pennies from heaven. So uh, those individuals leave. And then what happens is the people who are, you know, they might be considered a C player all of a sudden, once they've been given these tools and been given the support by their manager or their CEO, they say, well, if this person believes in me that much, I've got to demonstrate to them that their faith is well-placed in me. Again, this is one of the things that it frustrates me as well as puzzle. Well, it doesn't puzzle me because I see it so often. But th- this fear of failure, this culture where yeah. failure is viewed as a personality defect rather than feedback. So when you're implementing these programs with your clients and you're training them how to create a culture of accountability, what are the key messages and the underpinning boundaries and values that protect both sides and ensure that the accountability program delivers the result that you're hoping for? The first thing is a mindset of win or learn. There's no losing, there's no failure. It's you win or you learn. And that's where with an accountability program, it's, it's meant as a coaching tool. And really accountability is the underpinnings of a good coaching program because if you don't have data, when you go to coach, really what you're saying is my tummy thinks you're not doing very well. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Well, that then naturally moves on to the the conversation uh, around um, accountability between leadership and management because I think Mm. one of the metrics that really needs to be measured is the cadence of coaching. because in any organization where coaching is, becomes a part of the culture and where it's done consistently and frequently, I've seen sales, I've got clients who've grown their business 1,200% when mm-hmm. they implement that. Where yeah. they don't, you know, they might get 20, 30%, which is pretty good in normal terms. But in my world, I consider that to be a monumental catastrophic failure. So again, what are the, the ways that leaders can hold managers more accountable? Yeah, great question. And it it comes down to, as you talked about, that rhythm and that cadence. So when we're supporting our our organizations and they've got that mid-level of management, when we're talking to the leaders, what we're asking them to do is is hold their managers accountable to the four critical areas of management, which is supervising, coaching, mentoring, and training, and building some metrics in there into their own weekly accountability plan that says, are you role-playing once a week with every one of your people? Are you coaching 
every week with one of your people outside of that accountability, that little accountability conversation that I talked about earlier, where it's like five minutes on Monday and 15 minutes on Friday, that's not a coaching session. And managers slip up and they start to dive into coaching and it shouldn't be coaching. It should be accountability and then immediately have a coaching conversation after the fact. The same thing if from a sales manager perspective is the group accountability meeting, which also goes by the common name of a sales funnel review. So are they doing consistent regular sales funnel reviews with their team and not turning them into a coaching session or a storytelling session? A sales funnel review meeting should be very, very quick. It should be chapter headings only, just the facts, and make notes about the attitudes and the behaviors and the technique gaps that you're hearing from your people so that you can then have a coaching conversation afterwards and say, you know, Marcus, heard you saying that you're struggling getting past gatekeepers. I got 20 minutes. How about we sit down and do a quick role play on that? Absolutely. Well, again, this is really interesting. I was coaching a client about half an hour ago. and. She's one of few managers, so they run separate divisions. And what's really fascinating is the ones that have introduced accountability and a daily huddle and a culture of lesson capture are outperforming those that don't by a factor of threefold. And it's really fascinating because the people are pretty much the same. You know, we've assessed all of them. The difference is having that regular daily accountability to your peers mm-hmm. It's really interesting because that uh, you can't turn up more than two days in a row not having met your commitments without feeling True. like an oath. So I think what's really interesting here is that in an organization where you have control, hire, fire, then I can see how implementing accountability in that way might be slightly, I'm not going to say easier, but simpler. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in how you implement it in an environment where you have only got influence, but no power. So you're yeah. a channel manager and you're trying to introduce accountability to your partners and get yeah. them to buy in. How do you go about doing that? The first thing is we don't, don't call it accountability because that's got so many negative connotations. <laughs> uh, because as soon as you say accountability right away, you're going to get the door slammed of, hey, listen, man, we've got our own processes. We're going to do what we say we're going to do. We don't need you to beat us up on a monthly or weekly basis. So don't, don't call it accountability. Call it a support program or call it a, a weekly check-in program or, or whatever name you want to call it so we take the anxiety away. And then circling back on they can't argue with their own data. So really take the time to understand your partners. What are they trying to do? Why are they working with you? What do they want to be when they grow up? And then show them a way that through you and through selling your products and services, they can achieve all those goals and then back it up with, you need to do these things in this order. Are you comfortable with us having a regular meeting weekly to check in and see how you're doing and let us know how we can support you? So if it's framed as a support conversation instead of a stick conversation, much better conversation to have with a partner in a channel environment. I think this moves us to the next level of accountability. Within the Sandler Enterprise Selling process mm-hmm. and within the Making Channel Works program, that we're very strong on this whole piece around client-centric and partner-centric satisfaction. Yes. And putting yourself in the position of being vulnerable enough to being held accountable, being yes. measured. And I think it's really important that as leaders, we show leadership. Leaders don't create yeah. followers. They, they yeah. create more leaders. I think one of the really interesting things that we've noticed over the last couple of years as we've been putting the channel program together 
is mm-hmm. where the vendor channel manager puts themselves in a position and says, okay, how are you going to measure my contribution? How are we together going to be measured by the end user? That opens up a slew of potential because now you're, you're working as allies instead of accomplices or adversaries. What's your experience been when you've been implementing accountability into areas where they don't really have that level of control? And it goes down to, you know, number one, lead dog sets the pace, as you mentioned, right? Lead, leader, you know, if the leader's words are incongruent with their actions, humans are animals and animals have no capacity for language. All they can understand is behavior. And so if the vulnerability isn't there, and you've spoken about this before, about vulnerability being a leader's greatest strength, if you lead by being vulnerable, and and we do this with our clients, we do a quarterly review meeting with all of our clients built around client-centric satisfaction. And when I onboard a new client, I'll say, every 90 days, we're going to sit down and I'm going to hold you accountable to the KPIs that you tell me are important to you. And you're going to hold me accountable to a list of behaviors or activities or supports that you deem important. And when we get together every 90 days, I'm going to ask you, are you on pace, ahead of pace, or behind pace? And what are the action plans you're going to commit to? But then I'm also going to ask you, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 is you're firing me right now. And 10 is you can never see us not working together, whether that's literally true or not. How am I doing? Even if I'm a 10, I bet there's a way I could support you more effectively over the next 90 days. And it's fascinating to get feedback from our new client to say, no one else has ever had a conversation with us like that. They never have. Because again, I think most vendors, I've done a lot of work in media. And one of the, the proverbs in media is you're never more than three years from being fired. What sort of atrocious mindset is that? That then triggers in my mind blind spots. If mm-hmm. we think about the blind spots around accountability, do you mind running through some of those? Well, first of all, it starts with not having a culture of accountability, and that really starts with the leader, right? So if the leader is, hey, the accountability thing's good enough for you guys, but it's not good enough for me. I don't want to be held accountable. I don't have to be held accountable. I'm the majority shareholder or whatever that might be. The behavior is, is your culture, right? Your corporate culture is the behavior you approve implicitly or explicitly. And your corporate values and your mission are, is the behavior you show to the world. So if you want to have a culture of accountability and you want that to be part of your corporate values and corporate culture, the leader has to A, demonstrate it internally and B, the people externally have to demonstrate it to their vendors and partners and clients and prospects. And really that comes down to doing what you say you're going to do by when you're going to say you're going to do it. And if you can't do it because life happens, be proactive and communicate. It's okay to be proactive. Absolutely. Just don't be reactive. No one wants surprises, good ones or bad ones in business. Right. You want predictability. And one of the uh, things that we in my practice have really focused on is delivering hyper growth without loss of control. And mm. if you're going to grow your business three, four, five hundred percent, you want to know what's happening. Because if you suddenly land a whale, that wasn't expected. You now have a problem in terms of fulfillment, backfilling, uh, recruitment, then customer service suffers, customer experience gets tainted. I think one of the really important blind spots is um, rewarding harmful behaviors. And very often, doing what was done to you is one of those things. Um, And the other thing is the compensation plan. In your experience, when you've been working with your clients, how has the accountability process helped them realize that the comp plan 
is actually driving the wrong behaviors. Because it comes down to the behaviors and they've never actually looked at what are we incentivizing. They've just said, well, our industry compensates on this and this and this, and we have a strategic plan to sell this product or this service. So we're going to incentivize that way. And then ultimately they discover that they have created a monster in their sales or their delivery or their customer care group because they're incentivizing the wrong behaviors. And once they step back and realize that the accountability is about the behaviors and the activities we can control, they can then better compensate. Now, where the difficult conversation comes in is with the chief financial officer or the controller because they say, so hold on a second, we're going to pay people a bonus to do stuff that we hired them to do? The answer to that is yes, absolutely you are. Now, it's not going to be a majority of their variable compensation, but we want to incentivize the right behaviors. And we do that through variable compensation typically. And that can take time or money. A lot of our clients will give extra time to their people so they can go pursue their personal goals. That's really interesting. So that's the Google 20% rule, that kind of thing. Very similar, but it's got to be earned. So it's not a, you just get this because you happen to work here. It's if you check these boxes then you're allowed to allowed to go pursue your personal goals. There's a story in the book about a financial planning company and they had these two high achievers. And in the fall, one of them was consistently leaving early Fridays and consistently coming in late on Mondays. Now, if you don't live in an area where hunting is a big deal, you may not know why they were leaving early on Fridays and coming late on Mondays in the fall, but that was their hunting season. Yeah. So they were going to they were going to their cabin. So the managing director was very frustrated at this one individual. And so we sat down and we understood their personal goals was they wanted to go out and hunt. They had they made an investment in a cabin and they liked to hang out with their family and friends. So their cookbook, their their behavior plan was centered around get your stuff done by Thursday and you can take all of Friday off. It's really interesting. I mean, I, I have a belief that there is almost no job on the planet that can't be done within eight hours a day. Uh, experience tells me that people become addicted to working harder rather than smarter. True. And I think this whole process of accountability and getting people to focus on what matters, does it make the boat go faster? If it yes. does, we do more of it. If it doesn't, we question why we're doing it. Right. I have a lovely poster on my wall from despair.com. If you haven't gone there, it's my third favorite website. It's a picture of the Pamplona bull run and it says tradition. Just because you've done it that way, uh, always done it that way, doesn't mean it's not incredibly stupid. (laughs) Again, I think what's really interesting that's come out of this in my mind is that having a good accountability plan, getting people to really think about why they're doing what they're doing and is it delivering Mm -hmm. the result then feeds into three critical areas. One is the compensation plan because compensation drives behavior. And your point is excellent that it doesn't have to be just money. It can be reward through other things, including time to do stuff that they want to do. Then the second area is in recruitment, looking at how you need to modify your recruitment process, your hiring templates, the qualities Mm -hmm. that you look for, in particular, the habits and behaviors and the attitudes, beliefs, and values. And the third part is in the onboarding process, because Mm -hmm. I think that's where the culture is embedded, and you can turn an A player into a C player inside of four weeks if you don't have a good onboarding process. So 
again, I'm curious, have you used the accountability process in order to modify those three areas? Absolutely, we have. And in particularly, it's the onboarding side. And, and I've said to my clients, and in our area, in our territory, we have a lot of engineers, a lot of enterprise-level selling. There was a, a number thrown around that at any one time in North America, there's 300 million in purchase orders for engineering services. And 200 million of that resides in Calgary, which is where I'm based. Wow. So a lot of engineering, a lot of very technical. And I've said to my clients in those industries, you know, you don't walk in and walk out with a check. Like it's six, nine, 12. I have one client who it's 36 months from the time they say hello to the time that they're going to get a purchase order or a check. And I've said to those clients, you will know within three weeks whether or not you should terminate a new salesperson. Because one of two things is going to happen. Either A, they're not being accountable to the onboarding plan that you laid out back in your recruiting process. When Where we modify recruiting is we actually start sharing our onboarding plan and our accountability plan way back at the beginning of the first contact with a candidate. And then the other one is you can still add opportunities to the sales funnel in three weeks, whether you're brand new or not. And whether it's going to take 36 months to close or not, you can add new deals. And if you're not seeing those two things, then you're probably going to need to let that person go. But the mindset of most leaders in those organizations is, well, it, it takes X number of months to get up to speed and then know our product. You don't need to know the product. You need to get a meeting. And if you can get a meeting, then you can bring in someone who knows the product to have a discovery conversation and understand their pain budget decision but you don't need to know the product to get a meeting. And David Sandler proved that over and over and over again in his audience. Well, what's really interesting, I've worked in 450 different market segments since wow. I joined Sandler. And there has never been one where within five minutes of asking the right questions, I couldn't deliver a better 30-second commercial than someone with 30 years experience. Because the product is completely yep. irrelevant. So in terms of other blind spots, in your book, you have this fabulous analogy of fire chief or chief arsonist. Talk us through what that looks like and why that happens. Ties into accountability in the onboarding because part of the onboarding structure that we teach our clients is every week for 12 weeks, your new employee has to demonstrate a role-specific skill. So if we use sales as an example, week one is your 30-second commercial. Week two, it's your upfront contract for discovery meeting. And for my team, that is locked in their calendar before they even come on board. Because I get their email address a week or two ahead of time. And so I send them a meeting invite. But then what happens is you come on board and week one's great, week two's great. And week three, Friday morning, I send you a text and say, hey, Marcus, you know, something came up, man. I, I just can't make our onboarding meeting this morning. We'll do it later, which happens never. And now all I've taught you is everything you would need to know about accountability in our organization. And really what I'm doing is I'm becoming the lead arsonist where I'm starting a fire. And then six months later, when I'm firing you and you're telling me, well, why I've added deals to the funnel and I've been doing all these things. And I say, well, because you're not accountable. And now you're never going to say it to me, but in your head, you're like, you taught me everything I needed to know about accountability in my third week on board. I mean, you make a point in the book that if the leader isn't accountable, that sends the message out there. So you get reflected, out. You, you get reflected back what you project out. Again, I mean, one of the most common themes in you know, my day-to-day -day life, and I guess yours as well, is listening to this just litany of crappy excuses and 
how does putting in place a culture of accountability and creating a peer group where people own their result, they own their performance, they own their behavior, prevent that excuse culture? Because it comes down to data and because it's their data. So it comes out of their mouth. So it's real, right? If it comes out of their mouth, it's real. If it comes out of your mouth, you're a pushy micromanager. And that's the reason why, you know, quotas are not goals. They're gifts, but they're not goals. Goals are internally generated, not externally generated. So where the excuse making happens is the fire chief side. And you'd ask me about the fire chief and the fire chief is, you know, Sandler said sales is not a place to get your emotional needs met. And let's modify that to leadership and management is not a place to get your emotional needs met. Absolutely. Where we find a lot of the excuse making happens is the leader is attempting to get their emotional needs met either by externalizing, oh, it's not my fault, or they are running around attempting to solve the problems for the people that they hired to solve those problems. And this typically happens where a leader has a domain expertise. So I work with a lot of IT companies and a lot of IT companies are started by former IT technicians. And then they get sucked back into the IT technical side because that's what they like. And so when the boss, when someone knocks on the door and they go, Hey boss, I got this problem. What would you do? They go, well, when I was in your role, what I do is this and this and this. And they go, thanks, boss. And they run away and the leader goes, hey, I, I'm a great coach. I'm a great leader. I just taught them. And then what they've actually created is another blind spot, which is learned helplessness. Absolutely. All they want that person is, when I hit this problem, instead of thinking, I go run to my boss. And now the leader can't grow the business because they're just solving the same problems over and over and over again. And the corollary to that is upward delegation. Um, exactly. So what you then see is the leaders and the managers feel that they're run ragged, they're always tired, then they don't have time to focus on critical issues like, for example, always be recruiting. They should be building exactly. events. They should be coaching, but they're too busy to coach. They're too busy to recruit. It's a vicious circle. And one of the things that you mention in your book, and again, it's very close to my heart, and you mentioned it right at the start, is you know, we're basically animals. We're mammals. And we have 200, 300 million years of hardwiring. The rewarding of good behaviors, how do you build that into the accountability program? Because that's going to reinforce doing the right thing. Totally. And as my clients know about me, I'm cookie operated. So, you know, if there's a cookie at the end of, the, at the end of making my prospecting calls or doing recruiting interviews or whatever it is, I'm there. I'm good. So, so it, it circles back to that story about the, about the financial planner who was a hunter and tying it to their personal goals. So the reward for good behavior, it doesn't have to be a cookie. That's me. That doesn't have to be anybody else. Is tie it back to giving them an opportunity to go achieve their personal goals. So is it giving them more time to go volunteer coaching their kids a sport club? Or is it another, is it a monetary reward through a donation to a cause that that person really cares about? And then by incenting those behaviors and giving public strokes, that's another thing that a lot of leaders, especially technical leaders, forget is we are stroke oriented. Everybody has a number of strokes they have to get every day. And if they don't get them positively, they're going to do it like a child acting out negatively to fill their psychological stroke counter that Sandler talked about. So giving those public strokes 
in that group accountability meeting and say, hey, Marcus, you absolutely crushed it on your prospecting calls this week. Or you know what? You really stretched your comfort zone. I know you don't like networking, but you did three networking events this week. You had a bunch of great conversations. You added a bunch to your funnel. I'm really proud of you. By the way, would you mind sharing what you've done with the group? And if that's something that you like doing, then you'll share. And if it's something you don't like doing, I won't ask you because I don't want to make you uncomfortable. I'd make uh, one little caveat, and you've kind of touched on it there, depending on their behavioral preferences and communication style. I had one client, and the guy was 10 years in the business. They were actually going to, holding a party for him. And rather than be recognized in front of all these people who he loves to bits, I mean, he's loyal as hell. Uh, Mm -hmm. He climbed out of a second-story window down a drain pipe and managed to fall and break his uh, thigh rather than be singled out in public. So you've got to be a little bit careful with that. But you can Very give true. a stroke in private. You mentioned in your book, The Consequence Ladder. Talk a bit about that, because that's really interesting. The Consequence Ladder is usually a, a, an eye-opener for the, for the CEOs and the MDs we work with, because in business, consequence typically equates to you're fired. And as we talked about earlier, that's a really dumb thing in a lot of cases. Like People are going to have bad days, bad weeks, bad months, bad quarters, bad years. And just because they happen to fall off the pace a little bit does not mean you need to push them all the way down the mountain. So building in consequences and co-building it with the team, and this goes back to they can't argue with their own data and enrolling them in the program. So where a consequence ladder is not a good idea is when the leader comes out of their office and says, I have been to the mountaintop and these are the consequences. Bad idea. Get a team together, and there's a story in the book about how, how one of my clients actually pulled their, their whole sales team together, and they built individual consequence ladders. Now, that sounds like maybe a whole bunch of work, but really there was common themes. And usually, the first step on a consequence ladder is, hey, you didn't do your behaviors this week. Make it up by the end of next week. That's it. And then, you know, it can go a little bit higher, a little bit higher. And eventually you've got to terminate because eventually if they're not going to stick to the program, you got to terminate. And in the book, there's a story about a client of ours in, in the Midwestern United States, one of those stores where you can buy everything from like a, an apple to a speedboat. And they, they broke their sales team down into A, B, and C based on weekly sales. So the A's sold the most, C sold the least. And they had different accountability programs, different behavior programs, and different consequence ladders. And unfortunately, and this touches on my book on change a little bit, they had a bunch of veterans who had been through way too many flavor of the month programs. And so the veterans sat back and went, Ugh, this too shall pass. They read a book. They went to a conference. This, is, this will be over in a month. And well, it was over in a month for one of the B players who worked their way through the consequence ladder in a month, which was pretty <laughs> much the fastest they could work through the consequence ladder. <laughs> yeah. And they were fired because that was the ultimate consequence. And everybody fell into line because they went, oh, leadership is serious about this. This isn't going away. And then that client never had any turnover issues because of accountability. Now, they, had a, they terminated for other reasons and they had turnover for other reasons, but everyone stuck to the program because they realized that it wasn't a flavor of the month. Absolutely. One thing that I'm really curious about, where you implement accountability or you, you attempt to implement accountability and you're up against procrastination or you're up against the three, four weeks down the road, it kind of fizzles out. How yes. do you help your clients make sure that they don't fall into that trap? Great question. The, the first place that we start is we, at, we encourage the leaders to go first and build momentum on their own. Because once they've got momentum, the whole organization sees that this is not a flavor of the month. 
The other thing that we really encourage our clients to do because, and I'm sure you've had similar experience, most companies don't track their behaviors. They don't actually know what makes them successful from a prospecting, selling, closing, client development perspective. So we encourage them to ask their salespeople to only track their behaviors for the first month. So for 30 days, just mark down what makes you awesome. And then once we've got a data set, now we can start to build in, okay, well, you do this already. All we're going to do is formalize it a little bit. And it doesn't mean that it's locked in forever. And we actually encourage our clients to review their data every 75 days to look for patterns and make adjustments as necessary. But really, don't don't throw all the kids in the pool, so to speak. Start with the leader, get a set of data, and then co-build the plan with your people using some sort of mechanism that makes it easy for them to track and manage, whether that's a CRM, an Excel spreadsheet, an app, it doesn't matter. It's got to fit with the way the team does business. The more you get their fingerprints all over the solution, the better. And getting people to take personal ownership is really important. I can't resist tying this back to change because I know you wrote a great book on that as well. And my favorite quote comes from Woodrow Wilson, which is, if you want to make enemies, recommend change. (laughs) And what I'm very curious about is, as you start to implement accountability, it's Mm -hmm. undoubtedly going to be a catalyst for the leaders to start looking at where they can change, where they can start implementing organizational excellence and looking at their processes, their systems, how they measure, how they track, how they recruit. In terms of the sort of high-level view of your book on change, why do people resist it? And what are the elements of bringing people on side, even when there's a natural resistance to it, uh, that need to be thought through and executed? It really comes down to to a misunderstanding of the word change, because at the beginning of the book, I talk about how change is really external and impersonal. So today, we don't have an accountability program. Tomorrow, we do. Today, our office is located in this part of town. Tomorrow, it's located in that part of town. That's change. Human beings don't change, they transition. And that's an an internal and emotional process. So the, the stages of transition, denial, resistance, exploration, and commitment, some people will never, ever, ever get through one of those stages, the first two in particular. In fact, so in the area of Canada I grew up, there was a telecommunications company there and they merged with another telecommunications company over 20 years ago. And there are to this day technicians who drive company branded trucks who identify themselves as with the former company. They never moved past denial from this, from this change that happened over 20 years ago. And so understanding and the fact and, and where leaders step off is they went through all those stages six, nine, 12, 18 months ago when they first started thinking about making this change. And they've forgotten about that when they make the formal announcement to the team. And then they're shocked when the team doesn't go, boss, I don't know why we haven't done this before. <laughs> it's really interesting because I think a lot of people, when they're going through the process of change, feel some sense of loss or it's difficult to let go of what you're familiar with. And I think one of our primary drivers as human beings is to always look for what feels familiar. And getting away from that, it's like when you go to a Chinese restaurant. We've got a lovely Chinatown in London. And some of these restaurants Mm -hmm. have 400 things on the menu. 
And what, what I noticed is that people tend to get overwhelmed by that tyranny of choice. And they always mm-hmm. go with the crispy chili beef because that's what they've always had. The tendency to revert back to what you learned first uh, yes. is extremely strong. So how do you make sure that people progress and they move away from what they're comfortable and familiar with? It actually doesn't come from the leader. It comes from using your change champions. In the book, I call them angels. They're the ones who are like, boss, this is brilliant. Let's do this. To pull up the remainder of the organization who may be a little bit skeptical. Now, there's going to be people who will never change. doesn't matter if you're changing the tea in the break room. They were not going to get on board. But there's that sort of middle 60% of the organization. Again, they've been through too many flavor of the month programs. They're sitting on the fence saying, which way is this going to go? And what I say to my clients when we're in the discovery phase is sometimes Uncle Hamish has to come in and give the message that you've been giving for nine months. And then it happens. We'll be sitting in the room, you know, in one of our first sessions and I'll say something and the salesperson goes, oh, that's brilliant. And I can see it on the CEO's face. I've been telling you that for a year. It took this guy to tell you that. And, you know, sometimes when you're doing change, you need cousin Steve to go down and talk to the other cousins and say, yeah, I I know mom and dad say it should look this way, but (laughs) this is how I've done it. And this is how it really works for me. And how about you come join cousin Steve uh, in this whole accountability thing? Again, this is really interesting because it ties back to the accountability piece, which is this whole issue of trust, making sure that people feel safe in that transition whether they're moving into an accountability process or you're doing change across the organization. And too often, people's brain gets triggered, the amygdala fires off because they feel like they're not going to survive. One final piece, because we're coming to the end of our time, is how do you make sure that you allay those concerns and you just um, help them to suppress that animal instinct to fight Mm -hmm. back and to just freeze, flee or fight? It comes down to two things. So the first one is their communication preference, right? Communicating to them in the way that they want to be communicated with. I'm a very straight to the point person, right? Just tell me the benefit, tell me what I got to do and I'll go do it. Where there's other people who you need to hold their hand. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but that's the way they want to make sure everyone's safe, everyone's secure, everyone's supported. And you need to make sure that you're messaging to them that way. And the other one is, the three gifts of leadership, which our, our colleague Bill Bartlett talks about in his book on coaching, which is permission, protection, and potency. Permission to fail because they're human beings and they will. Protection that when they do, it's a support opportunity, not a gotcha moment. And then potency is in a day-to-day context, the tools and resources to succeed in their current role. In a change context, it's the tools and the resources to successfully implement the new change and change their behavior, adapt their behavior to the new way of doing business. And that's where the planning of the change is really critical. And for the leader to recognize that it's an emotional experience, not an intellectual one. That's a really important point. Because again, if you want the change to last, there has to be buy-in. I always talk about the difference between bacon and egg. You know, chickens involved, the pigs committed. And Amen. If, if people are going to be involved in this process, they need to be fully committed to it. Um, yes. Because you can't be half pregnant. I know I probably look it, but in fact, quite very pregnant. <laughs> the key issue here is people have to buy in. And because otherwise the resilience won't be there when times get tough. And yes. that protection piece is so key. So I just want to wrap up now. If you were to go back to your 21-year-old self, 
and <laughs> you're going to advise them on accountability. What would be the big takeaway that you would try and drive home in obviously a nurturing manner in their communities and style? As much as I possibly could be nurturing. It goes back to do what you say you're going to do by when you say you're going to do it and be proactive in communicating because life happens, right? People get sick, family gets sick, you get into an accident on the motorway, be proactive and let people know in advance that, hey, I said I was going to do this by this time. Something came up. It's not going to happen, but here's when I will have it do. Here's when I will do it by. Don't leave them hanging with, well, when is he going to do it? Give them another accountable date that is realistic. And this comes to the whole piece around contracting. I think always be contracting, whether you're working with prospects, channel partners, or team members. It's really critical. My big takeaway from today is win or learn. Failure is inevitable. It's part of the human condition. If you fail in role, it's almost never fatal. And it, it should be a learning opportunity. And that whole piece around making sure that people feel safe to fail And they don't make the same mistake repeatedly and they Mm -hmm. capture the lessons. And more importantly, they share them. I think that's really important. One of the things that I've noticed with my clients is the ones that share daily lessons. The commitment to the accountability process is just unbreakable. It's magnificent because everybody is learning. And that's the rising tide raises all boats. Hamish, I'm conscious that you've got to dash. Thank you so much for your contribution today. If anyone wants to get hold of you, how can they? Your best way is through LinkedIn. Uh, I publish an article every Sunday on LinkedIn or most Sundays on LinkedIn. I'm done for the year. Also, Twitter and Instagram, we're at Sandler Hamish. And we've got lots of great content there. That's the best way to find me. And uh, also, I'll be speaking at the Sandler Summit in March uh, on accountability with uh, our colleague Haley from Boston. Fantastic. Hamish Knox, thank you very much. Thanks, Marcus. Take care. Pleasure.